Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, you're listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette, Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford. And this week, we're learning all about how to achieve liftoff with a launch. And joining me to find out how we achieve liftoff with a launch is Press Gazette Associate Editor, Will Turville. Hi, Will. Hi, Dom. Love the title. Just thrown thrown at me. Love it. Lift off with launch. That's great. I love it. Alliteration. We're not talking about rockets, though, are we? No, not this week. This week we are talking about political news and how to lift off the launch of a political news website. Ah, good. So I was going to ask you about that because I know you've been speaking to the CEO, is it, of Punchbowl News? Yep, Anna Palmer, the chief executive of Punchbowl News, which is a political news startup based in Washington, D.C. So they started out nearly two years ago, just a couple of days before the January 6th insurrection. So quite a newsy time to start by accident. You'd think from the name that maybe they, they covered the drinks industry. There is an interesting reason for that, Dom, and that is that Punchbowl, or the Punchbowl, is a secret service code name for the capital. That's why they're called Punchbowl News. I'm glad you asked. I guess what's interesting is they're not short of political news, are they, in Washington? They've got, like, the New York Times, the Washington Post. They've got Politico doing a great yeah. job. So, um, Axios. Yeah, there are, some, there are already some great titles there. You're absolutely right. So that was why I was interested to speak to Anna Palmer. In fact, I was interested to find out if we were to launch a new title in a very niche B2B space, then maybe you'd say, okay, there's probably an audience there. And a couple of episodes ago, we did an interview with Industry Dive and the chief executive there, Sean Griffey, talking about the sorts of markets that they aim for. But with this one, yeah, it's already extremely competitive and it's just fascinating. It was founded by three former Politico journalists and I think it was really interesting, the idea that they looked at Washington and just thought, you know what, I know there's already a lot of news here, but I think there's room for some more and that people will actually pay for our product. And have they achieved liftoff? 
I'd say they've achieved liftoff, yeah. In their first year, the Wall Street Journal reported that they made $10 million in revenue. We don't have any figures for this year, but I think we can assume that it's grown. The number of staff as of this week is 16, and that's up from a much smaller number to start with. There were three of them that founded it. So yeah, I'd say they've achieved liftoff, and there's probably some way for them to go still and they seem to be heading in the right direction. Let's not forget that Politico sold for a billion dollars, didn't it, this year? So there's a few there's a few quid. Last year, yeah. And Axios as well, valued at five hundred more than $500 million. So yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a few quid or a few, what would you bucks. say in America? Bucks, yes, a few bucks in it for them. How have they done it, Will? Tell us. Or maybe let them tell us. Yes, that is exactly what I wanted to find out. However, before I started asking Anna Palmer questions about how they've done it, I was interested to, to learn a little bit more about her background. I was particularly interested to read that she actually grew up on a, on a farm in North Dakota. And as you know, I grew up on a farm in Cornwall, which isn't quite as far away from London as North Dakota is away from Washington. But I just thought that was quite interesting. And so I asked her to explain a little bit about how she got into political journalism to begin with. I came to Washington in 2004 and started reporting on lobbying for a bi-weekly newsletter. So a newsletter that was every other week. You can tell how things have changed today. Mm. We have a three times a day newsletter that we put out at Punchbowl News, covered the power people of Washington, was at roll call, and then spent 10 years at Politico, the last five of which leading Playbook, as well as their women's leadership platform, Women Rule. You're from North Dakota originally, is that right? I am. I grew up on a farm just south of Fargo, North Dakota. My parents still live there. Yes, that's quite an unusual background for journalists. I also grew up on a farm. The UK is smaller, so I grew up in a farm in Cornwall, which isn't as further away from London as North Dakota is away from Washington. But do you think has that? Has, how does that affect you? Does that make you give you a slightly different perspective on things to start with when you started out in journalism? I think that's right. I came to Washington a week after, two weeks after graduating college with waitress shoes and resumes. I didn't have a lot of personal connections here. And I think I also come at it from a very Midwestern perspective versus a lot of folks in journalism are oftentimes are much more connected or have been in politics or their families are in politics. But hopefully it's given me a different vantage point in terms of how to tell stories, what stories might be important. Mm. And how difficult was it to start out in political journalism in Washington, D.C. with your background, presumably, as you say, with not too many ready-made contacts? In some ways, Washington is a its a great place to come where you don't know anyone because there's a lot of people from a lot of different places that are coming here. I had done a bunch of internships in journalism and had done a semester in Washington my junior year of college where I interned at Roll Call and got to know some people. So I wasn't coming in totally blind, but I think that if there's one thing Washington often rewards, it's hard work and it was a real easy way to move up the ladder in some ways. And when did you start at Politico? Started in 2009, I believe it feels like it was a long time ago, but I was there. So I was there almost 10 years and left at the end of 2019. And I guess during that period, then you would have witnessed its growth from reasonably smallish publication to something that's now very well known, probably across the world, certainly in the UK and Europe, because there's an edition here. But what was it like to be part of a growing media organization there? 
Yeah, absolutely. And we came in when I was there, it was maybe 75 people or something like that. It was a much smaller footprint just in terms of media organization in general. The rise of Politico was really started in the Obama administration, that same kind of rise. And when I was there, there was a lot of outgrowth, right? They launched Europe. They launched states when I was there. They went and doubled down on a lot of different, their kind of pro or their premium offerings that they charge a lot of money for, kind of people that are really need to know minute by minute what's happening in Washington. So it was an exciting time to be there for sure. I learned so much. There's so many people that worked there with me and have gone on to do other exciting jobs, a lot of opportunities there because it was changing time. I went from really helping them start their lobbying coverage to covering presidential campaigns. I spent six months covering military sex assault and then had the opportunity when Mike Allen and Jim Bandahai left to, to start Axios to put my hand up along with Jake Sherman, one of the founders of Punchbowl News, to say that we wanted to take on the playbook. Mm. And what was that like? Because it's very, very high profile. It's in the UK now as well, obviously. It's very high profile. What was it like having that responsibility and the challenge of it? Yeah, I think it prepared me very well for this job in the sense that there was a lot of, it was very high profile. There's a lot of pressure. Mike had created Playbook for and done it for 10 years. And we had a real theory around what we thought was going to be a successful formula, which was really thinking about how do you modernize something that was originally meant for a BlackBerry? And so we, the look and feel of it, we spent a lot of time thinking about curation. When we were there over the five years that we did that, we doubled revenue, tripled audience, really went global. I was in the UK when we launched Playbook UK. So it was really thinking through how we could best be the front porch to Politico in general. And it ended up working out really well. We started a podcast and we just, we really went and made it its own real platform. Yeah. And what made you decide to leave Politico? Oh, I think we you become very entrepreneurial when you are running a platform like that. And I was also running their women's programming, Women Rule, which was really a global kind of event convener. And so I think we looked around and it was, what's the next challenge, right? And we felt like Politico was this rise of the Obama administration. Axios was really came into the rise of the Trump administration. And we felt like there was going to be a real return to the Hill being very important in a Biden administration. And we felt like that is really kind of has always been the center of gravity for us as reporters. And so I think we were very excited about the opportunity to think about what would we do when you take over a legacy product of somebody else that they create? There's things that just, you know, that, that come with that. And we wanted to have the opportunity to build something and to build a business. Mm. And how daunting was it to go off on go off and launch something on your own, obviously with some colleagues, but yeah, you're leaving the safety of a well-established company and creating something on your own. I think a lot of people thought we were a little crazy because we had such a great perch and it was a, we had done a lot with form, but I think it was scary, but I also think taking on Playbook was probably, you know, almost scarier in some ways. I We knew that we had a following. We had written also a New York Times bestselling book while we had done Playbook. And I think we had felt very confident that our readers, our listeners were used to waking up with us. And as long as we had a very defined approach about what we wanted to do, that the rest would come. And I think that the evidence has been proven out, right? We started with four people. So Jake, Sherman and myself as founders and our co-founder, John Bresnahan, who was the Capitol Hill bureau chief for Politico, as well as Rachel Schindler, 
really runs all of our product and growth. Today, we are going to be making an announcement tomorrow. We'll be 16 people in two years. There's a lot of challenges. The scariest thing probably was three days into business was that when January 6th happened, right? And so there was a lot of challenges just being that small and the center of our gravity, our world was under attack. And so I think it was that was probably one of the more challenging things. Where were you and your team for the 6th of January? Yeah, so Jake and John were in the Capitol reporting, and I live on Capitol Hill. I was on Capitol Hill, along with our colleague, Rachel Schindler, getting a newsletter out, right? I mean, and doing the back end of it. But it was it was a pretty terrifying day. There's been some reporters who haven't been able to return because it was that scary. And I think we looked at it as it's also a huge challenge of how are we going to cover this institution in a moment of crisis? Mm. And that was obviously a shocking day. How do you think American politics, this is taking a step back from our conversation a bit, but I'd be really interested to know how you think American politics has changed since then, if it has at all, as we come up to a couple of years since the event? Yeah, I mean, I think we are in a moment of extreme tribalism in the US right now. I think you see it in other countries as well. But I think from my time and almost 20 years of working here, there's probably never been a more partisan time where I think trust among colleagues, even it used to be you were from different parties, but we could all have a drink at the end of the night together. And I think that era has really ended in a lot of ways. We'll see what comes forward, but it's been an extremely partisan time on the Hill. And I think a breakdown, I think, between oftentimes the two parties and the ability to work together on a lot of things. Mm. Are you talking just about politicians there or media as well? I was talking about politicians. We're in a very different environment, right? Where you have a real choose your own news environment, right? So if you're super liberal, you're probably only getting certain news. If you're super conservative, you're only going to certain news outlets. I think one of the things that we really pride ourselves on at Punchable News is the idea that we are nonpartisan, right? We call balls, we call strikes. We're really experts in understanding the process of what's going to happen. And I think we are the number, the proof is in the pudding where we are read by just as many Republicans on Capitol Hill and lawmakers as we are by Democrats. Hi, I'm Armando Yanucci. And I'm Anusha Kellyan. And we present Westminster Reimagined on the New Statesman podcast. Each episode, we'll be taking a look at how our politics has got so broken and whether there's anything we can do to fix it. We hear from people shaping our society, from the front line to the corridors of power, alongside campaigners, journalists and satirists, including John Stewart, Ian Hislop, Rosamond adukissi Deborah, and Catherine Haddon. You can listen to all three series now. Just search the New Statesman podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to newstatesman.com forward slash Westminster Reimagined. So you mentioned the the partisanship. I've asked a couple of other people on the podcast about this from the US, but it, I thought it was interesting a couple of months ago when the chief executive of Axel Springer, which now of course owns Politico, was talking about the fact he thinks there's too much partisanship in the US media. And he saw that as an opportunity for Politico. Do you recognize that criticism and see it as an opportunity as well for Punchbowl? I think it's interesting because the media environment and landscape has changed. When I was got into this business, the New York Times was in had hiring freezes. The Post was laying people off. 
we are in a really robust environment right now where there's a ton of coverage and there's a ton of startups in this space. I think it's a really exciting time to be in journalism and that there are different modes. I think for us, we felt like on the Hill, there was an opportunity to be nonpartisan and to really understand the process. And we become the hometown paper on Capitol Hill. And that's what we're, that's where our focus is. Mm. I was going to ask, maybe this is a different answer, but I was going to ask, looking back a couple of years, what where you saw the gap in the market specifically for you, not just in terms of the nonpartisanship, but any other areas where you thought, yeah, that, there's an opportunity there for us to grow and to fill a gap. Yeah, I mean, Washington is the biggest business in, in, in the world, right, in terms of spending money and in terms of creating policy, whether it's in reaction to what's happening elsewhere in the world or it's proactively. And we felt like there was an opportunity in terms of the other outlets and really having a focus on the leadership in Washington, their relationship with the White House. And so I think you'll have seen us be very focused on that. And I think there is a huge appetite in terms of audience. Because I would always argue that anybody themselves or the companies that they work for that are regulated should be reading Punchbowl News because they should want to understand what is happening in, the, in, in, in those conversations. Mm. And I think you said a couple of minutes ago you heard to Punchbowl as a paper, which I guess it is in the metaphorical sense. But can you tell us what Punchbowl is? What products do you have? You mentioned that you've got, you've got a newsletter that go, goes out three times a day. What else is Punchbowl? for a consumer. We have a free morning newsletter that goes out to the whole audience. And then we have a paid premium product that is a midday and a PM newsletter. We also have a daily podcast called The Daily Punch, which is kind of 10 minutes, what you need to know about what's happening in Washington that Jake and I do every morning. We also do a large number of events. So those are editorial, but then we also do social events. I think we try to think about our audience really differently and more traditional news organizations where we call and call it a community, right? And so we are looking for people to be part of our ecosystem in as many ways as possible. So that's reading us, listening to us, coming to our events. <clears throat> we also have something called the Canvas, which is an anonymous survey of senior Capitol Hill staff and a separate one of kind of downtown lobbyists and K Street folks. And it's really our tracking poll of what insiders thinks could or could not happen. That's become very popular. And then we do platform plays. So we just had our equity summit last week, where in our first year, the punch up was we focused on racial equity as well as sustainability. And those are kind of thinking about things in a little bit of a different way. So it's part profiles, it's part cohorts where we have kind of Chatham House rules and really trying to bring together the public sector, private sector and the nonprofit world. And you mentioned that as of this week, you're going to have 16 members of staff or? 16, that, yes. Yeah. How many of those are editorial members of staff? We're pretty half and half at this point. I don't, I know okay. I'm off the top of my head, I don't have it, but we are really growing. The two hires that we're going to announce this week are both editorial. So we're really thrilled about that. And what can you tell me about the business more widely? Can you give me any subscription numbers, revenue numbers, anything like that? Interested to, to hear how? Everybody's interested, let me <laughs> tell you. No, so we're a private company, so we don't necessarily talk about that publicly. Mm. What I can point you to is the Wall Street Journal did a story a year ago, and in our first year in business, we did more than $10 million in business, and we did more than a million dollars of subscription business. That This past year, I would say we have doubled down on all of that, so we have not shared a number publicly on what our revenue is this year. I will say I'm very focused on our subscription business, so we've hired not only a community manager, really helps with some of our big premium teams, 
but then also somebody who is direct kind of B2B sales or our first kind of actual salesperson to, to focus on that. And how big do you think Punchbowl News can be ultimately? What's your goal for next year and for in 10 years time? Yeah, I don't really think about it as in people, right? Our goal, I think both Jake, if he was here, he would say, I think a lot of legacy news organizations are broken and have a lot of people. And so I think we are not focused on let's hit this number of people or we need to be there. We want to hire people as we need them. You know, I think we raised very little money to do this this organization. We want it to be nimble. We want people to feel really bought into it. So I think that's more of how I see it and more of thinking about what are the power bases that we want to be covering and how are we expanding to do that versus we have to be at this in this geography or something like that. So I think we're trying to come at it from our own way. We also really always, we like being nimble, the idea that you can experiment. One of good example of that is where we did a Slack channel around a big debate, right? And we had it there for two weeks and it was meant to be created and then also sunset. And so I think we think a lot about what are different ways where we can think about engaging people, giving them the information that they want in the ways that they want it. Was events always part of the plan for you? Yes, for sure. Yeah. So I'd be interested because obviously launching in early 2021, maybe at the time that might have seemed like a bit of a risk, potentially short term. It's difficult to remember back actually, isn't it, until what stage of the pandemic we're in then. But it sounds like it might have been a little bit of a concern, maybe. I mean, we had done a lot of events when I was at Politico. And so I think what we tried to do is take the best of what we had learned there. And in the beginning, we they were all virtual. So we did that. And then we since now do both virtual and in person and social. And now we've launched our first summit. So I think for us, that's again, part of though, it's not just about what do we want to do? It's about really thinking, what do what does our community want? And one of the things that we found out of COVID, I say this all the time, is Washington is a contact sport, right? Body language, who's talking to who is really important. And we want to be that facilitator, again, where Republicans and Democrats can actually be in the same room. So you're chief executive of Punchbowl News, which I'd be interested to know because obviously you're still a journalist, but what does that role entail? Yeah, it's totally different than anything I've ever done. I feel like I've had trial by fire in live business school, right, in terms of all different things. We work with a lot of different outside firms that help us with some of the just the blocking and tackling of of business, but really thinking through where do we want to be in five to 10 years? How do we get there? What are the building blocks? Where are the big bets that we want to take? And that's that's where I spend a lot of my time and also just culture. And we really think a lot about who we work with how we're engaging with them, making sure they feel like their development is happening. And so that's something I was not ever really involved with my previous capacities. You mentioned your podcast before, 10 Minutes. What made you decide on that short length and what kind of podcasts do you like listening to generally? Yeah, so we had, we did a podcast at Politico and so that was very scripted. And so we wanted to do something a little bit different. So it is The Daily Punch. You can subscribe on any platform. My plug of the day, or you can also subscribe to Punchbowl News at punchbowl.news. But the podcast is the top three stories in happening in Washington. It's Jake and myself going back and forth. It's very popular with the people that listen to it. It's really the most unvarnished version. It's not scripted. It's we go back and forth. We agree. We disagree. Sometimes I haven't even had coffee yet. So you're getting the real takes. So I think people enjoy that because they know us. They you know, there's a real intimacy with morning newsletters in some ways where people, the first thing they do is rolling, are they rolling over and reading? And now they're rolling over and listening. So that has been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. We were just talking about where we see that going yesterday and where some things we might be piloting around that. I, I also used to host a women's podcast, which was much more kind of traditional 
interview format. That's much more of what I listen to than some of these more short things. But we felt like this was kind of the sweet spot of what we had the capacity to do in terms of just overall staffing. And then also people really want to get the kind of into the nitty gritty as much as possible from us. Mm. What time do you record it? 5 a.m. Yeah. Okay. So slightly pre-coffee for you sometimes as well. Sometimes. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And what time does it, what's the turnaround time? Fast. It's up. So we are, the newsletter itself goes out sometime between usually 5.30 and 6 a.m. And the podcast is, it's ready to go when that happens. Mm. Okay. So you weren't tempted after many years of running your newsletter and having to keep all sorts of odd early hours to to make it an evening podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it might be nice, but no, we do the vast majority. I think one of the difference makers we feel like is we do the vast majority of the writing and making sure that everything is kind of is up to date is Jake, myself and John Bresahan are up every morning. So I think you alluded to this earlier, but there are lots of interesting and fun new startups coming out of the US at the moment. What do you think is behind that? I think it's probably easier than ever before to start a newsletter, right? A lot of the barrier to entry was creating a CMR and all the CMS and all those things. And so I think with whether you have Substack or you have people getting much more fluent with WordPress, I think that's part of it. I think also you look at COVID and a lot of people examined what their work life was and how what they were going to be doing next. And I think that's probably driving some of it as well as other platforms trying to hire folks, as well as I think people pushing up against some of the more legacy news organizations. We always say that the water is warm. It's been a great experience. I think entrepreneurship is high highs and low lows, and you have to have a risk tolerance for it that some people don't have. But if you do and you're willing to do the work, I think it's been by far the most gratifying thing of my career. And there is just so many publications clustered around Washington these days. How does anyone find the time to keep on top of all of it? Obviously, your 10-minute podcast is quite useful. But Yeah, I think that's right. Listen, I think there's a lot of content. We're in an age of there's the democratization of information has occurred through the internet. I think for us, we really focus on making sure that we're indispensable, that you are getting information from us that you are not getting from anywhere else, right? If we are doing the same things as other news organizations in terms of coverage or in terms of stories, then we probably lost our reason to exist. We really focus on, we break a lot of news. We really try to bring people behind the scenes in terms of what's actually happening. And I think the other big differentiator is we really understand the process. And that's one thing that Washington, either something does or doesn't happen, understanding process is really important. Mm. And does any, do you ever see anyone around Washington reading a physical newspaper these days? I don't know. I hope so. In my, but I think most people are obviously getting their. What we have heard from our readers, and we tr- we do surveys a lot just to make sure that we're keeping up with where they want to be. A lot. We did a lot of kind of focus groups before we started around. You know, should this be an app? Should this be a website? Should it be whatever? And our readers in Washington, in particular, really wanted something on their phone. They wanted it direct to them as soon as possible. Thanks for that, Will. Great interview. Great to hear that they're doing so well. I think what's interesting is over the last year, although there's been quite a lot of cutbacks and there's been a few closures, there have been a lot of launches as well, haven't there? And I know in the figures we track on Press Gazette, I think we've counted up several hundred, I think four or five hundred new jobs as well as all the cutbacks that have been. So there are always new things, aren't there? Even in a bit of a downturn like we're going into at the moment. But I think 
I'm going to I'm going to put my neck on the line here and predict that there'll be lots of interesting new launches next year as maybe some old things or other things close. I think there'll be some interesting new things. That's interesting. Where do you think that's going to happen in the UK? I'd say in the UK, yes. Yeah, because there has been a bit of a trend of these new US startups coming up. Punchbowl, Puck, Axios is a bit older, but yeah. It does feel like it's quite an exciting, buzzy time in the US media, and there's Semaphore as well, of course, and it'd be great if that could come to the UK. You get these, all these tech people who've been cleared out of uh, some of the tech giants who are knocking around now looking for stuff to do, and then you get sort of old stages as well, don't you, who've uh, maybe been made redundant or, uh, or left and are just looking for looking for something interesting to do because they've got some petrol left in the tank. I'm thinking like sort of Martin Clark in the who we think is oh yeah yes and then it'll be interesting to see what Martin Clark does next absolutely look at look yeah at Kamal Ahmed and Will Lewis mm. over the news movement although they probably not thank me for calling them old stages there you go <laughs> <laughs> what do you think Will is the bits of advice that we can glean from that then for a punchbowl news on the sort of things that publishers need to do well if they're going to have a successful launch. Yeah, I think my key takeaways were, I've listed them down for myself so that to make it a bit easier. Number one, and it's much easier said than done, but I think the key point that she was making was you've got to make yourself indispensable, which is really difficult. But I think if you get the right journalists who have got good contacts and they're good writers and they're enthusiastic, then you can do that. Two, I think, or the, my other big learning actually is that events are back. I think it was quite bold of Punchbowl News to launch with events in early 2021, but that seems to be paying off. And I think events are back and are going to be a good way for publishers to make money going forward. Number three, newsletters are obviously good, as are podcasts. I think it was interesting that they have a 10-minute podcast, which is an interesting idea. You don't get too many 10-minute podcasts, at least in the UK. I think there are a few knocking around in the US. And maybe that's quite a good thing. Maybe people want a bit more brevity in their podcasts. And number four, the main my main takeaway, and I may look into doing this for a New Year's resolution, actually, is you've got to start waking up at 5am. If you really just want to get away with uh, being a good journalist, I think these days, maybe you do have to wake up at 5am. I keep interviewing people and they keep telling me they wake up at 5am. Piers Morgan, Mark Kleinman last week, Anna Palmer, she records her podcast at 5am. So maybe that's the key. Will you be joining me? The early journalist catches the story, don't they? Yeah, it's, it's depressing, isn't it? Especially when it's cold like this, it's difficult to wake up at 5am, but maybe I'll give it a go. I'm quite an early riser, but yeah, 6am 6, 6 is my get out of bedtime. Anything before 6 feels more like night time to me. It's, but yeah, maybe we should do that and we'll become indispensable by waking at 5am. I think it's the way to do it. We could start recording this podcast at 5am, although I'm not sure the producers would thank us for that. Good advice, though, and so, yeah, something to aim for in, in 2023. 2023. But I think advice that a lot of journalists are going to struggle to follow, the, especially national newspaper journalists, because they tend to have a bit of a later start, don't they? Their day is more focused around that sort of print deadline, aren't they, of about 7 p.m., so they would die a bit later. But yeah, online, you've got to get up early, because you? you need to have something ready for when people when they wake up. Yeah, depending on when your shifts are, yeah. But for me, 5 a.m. in 2023 is the goal. Don't sleep. Yeah, there's that as well. <laughs> Thanks, Will. Great stuff. Thank you, Dom. Yeah, is this our last... I don't think this is our last podcast before Christmas, Will. No, but it's the last one I'm going to be on, so... Thanks, Will. A happy Christmas to you too. Thank you.
You've been listening to the future of media explained. Me, Press Gazette Editor-in-Chief, Dominic Constant, and Press Gazette Associate Editor, William Turville. Expertly produced, as always, by Adrian Bradley. But one more podcast for 2022, then we'll have a couple of weeks off. Look out for that one next week. And you can listen to all our podcasts, 25 or 26 of them now, wherever you get your podcasts. Do like them, leave us a good review if that's possible. And remember that you can read more about all the issues we cover on the podcast on our website, prescadet.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.